So Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to continue in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so this this morning, our our passage, our text is going to be verse 16 of chapter 3 through verse 16 of chapter 4. So chapter 4 only has 16 verses, so it's 316 through chapter 4, and we'll read that in a minute. But last week, if you, if you were with us, by way of reminder, but if you weren't with us, last week in the first 15 verses of chapter 3, we saw that there, there is a time for everything. We saw that God is the God of all seasons, and, and we, we looked at the reality of our entire lives, your entire life, my entire life, every season of it is lived in the context of your and my Creator, And that creator God is in control and he has ordered and arranged every season that you've ever been through and every season that you will ever go through. And he, as the sovereign one, has made everything beautiful in its time, the preacher told us last week. And in light of that reality at the beginning of chapter 3, our verses this week, in these verses the preacher is going to let you know that there are some real tragedies, some real corruption, some real sorrow under the sun. And so we're going to focus on unhappiness under the sun. That's the title of the sermon, unhappiness under the sun. And the preacher to show us unhappiness under the sun, he's going to take, take us through four different occurrences or four different things, um, occurrences that he sees taking place in this world, in life under the sun. And while, while these, these occurrences vary and, and their unity is not overly clear, a theme that, that runs through them all is that unhappiness, this, this unhappiness under the sun is primarily driven by selfish living. Okay, so we'll see that, especially as we get near the end. But unhappiness under the sun is driven primarily by selfish living, which is a theme that we continue to see in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's becoming more clear as we continue to go through. But, but those, think about those who view life as a mean to gain only, or to prestige, or to making a name for themselves, those people are the ones who view others, who view their neighbors, not as friends, but as enemies or obstacles. And when everyone else is your enemy, who's against you, who's going to prevent you from achieving what you want, when you're in competition with everyone, you're going to abuse, oppress, hate them, and at the end of the day, you're going to be a very lonely and unhappy person. And so, and so especially as we, as we near the end of this passage, the focus is going to be away from loneliness and it's going to emphasize, the preacher is going to tell us that we were created to live in relationship with others. And we're going to see unhappiness is the result of a lot of selfish living. And so even in light of all this unhappiness, the, the big theme doesn't change from the beginning of chapter 3, which is that God is still the God of all seasons. And even in light of this unhappiness, he's still the one in control, he's still the one to be trusted, and he is the one who in the midst of an unhappy world the only one in the midst of an unhappy world who can give joy, satisfaction, and hope. And so it's a relationship with him that sustains us through the unhappiness because we're not not promised not to go through the unhappiness, as we'll see in in these verses. So uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16, you can follow along. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 4. So I'm going to pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. The preacher writes, Moreover, I saw under the sun... That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. 
I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than, a, than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw all toil and all skill is, is in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no, no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity, a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in our time together this morning that you would encourage us with your word. I pray that we would be transformed by your spirit, the work of your spirit through your word. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us, your people. We are eagerly awaiting a word from you. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we, I've broken this down into four sections, and so that's what we're going to work through, these four sections of unhappiness under the sun. And so we'll begin first with verses 16 through 22. Uh, the, the last passage of chapter 3, and we're going to see wickedness or injustice. Then second, the first three verses of chapter 4, we're going to see oppression. And then the, the, in the middle, after, after verse 3, in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, we're going to see envy or envious labor. And then finally, the last section of chapter 4 is going to be human isolation or loneliness. And so the, those are the, the four sections we're going to work through. So let's begin there in, in verse 16 of chapter 3, verse 16, and we see wickedness. And so notice what the preacher says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. 
And so this first example of unhappiness under the sun is that even in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness, even there, the preacher says, was wickedness. wickedness. Even there, as in not the places where wickedness might be expected, but in the places where wickedness should not be expected and should not be present, even there, he says, there's wickedness. Which, which seems to imply if the places where, where there's supposed to be justice and righteousness, if wickedness is there, then there's really no place where wickedness does not wreak havoc, which is the reality of life under the sun. Which also seems to imply, in light of what was just said in chapter 3, that God's world is out of control. Surely there's no season for this. If God's in control and has made everything beautiful, what about injustice and wickedness? And so, I mean, consider especially Israel in this situation. Both the civil and the religious authorities in Israel were charged with leading and governing and enforcing justice on behalf of God himself. They're not, they're not in a democracy. They're in a theocracy where, where their political leaders and their religious leaders are one and the same. And even there, in the places of authority, where there's supposed to be justice and righteousness, there is wickedness. It is a great evil. And so instead of the weak and the innocent being protected, when wickedness occupies the place of justice and righteousness, there's no hope for those underneath that authority. And it is, it is a helpless situation. But it's not just Israel where this unhappiness is present. I mean, think about, you don't have to be a historian to know that all throughout history, our, our world is full of examples of corruption and injustice and wickedness in the places and among the leaders who are supposed to enforce justice and who are supposed to stand for righteousness. And I'm sure in our own country you can think of name after name. Think of other countries. I mean, I mean just, just off the top of my head, Hitler and Stalin and Nero and Kim Jong-il and Saddam Hussein and Pol Pot and Zedong and, and leader after leader of, of these dictators of all of these communist countries that, that are just wicked, who are supposed to lead their country, but are in, they are instead guilty of destroying those members of the country that they're supposed to protect. Wickedness in the place of justice. But it's not just the political arena. Think about clergy and pastors and priests, the supposed place of righteousness, the, the upstanding leaders speaking for God. It's not uncommon. Week after week, month after month, countless occurrence of corruption or abuse or scandal. And so if we open our eyes to see what has been and what is going on in our world even today, we see the same things the preacher does. We see wickedness in the place of justice. And, and we have to ask ourselves, what do we make of this? Is God really the God of all seasons? Does this really occur under his watch? If God is in control of these occurrences, the fact that these things have happened and continue to happen could be conjured up as evidence against God's control in this world, couldn't it? Surely God is not the God of all seasons when some seasons are so full of wickedness and evil. In fact, this is a historic problem that Christians have held to dealt with, the problem of evil. If God's good, why does evil exist? And so the preacher, notice how he answers this, how he addresses this in verse 17. He sees what he sees, but in verse 17 of, of chapter 3, he quickly reminds himself that while things may appear to be out of control, the reality is the preacher says that God will judge. The preacher takes heart that the God of all seasons will eventually bring about divine justice and will establish righteousness. Verse 17, I said in my heart, 
God will judge the righteous and God will judge the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Though God doesn't bring immediate judgment, the preacher wants us to know that God will right every wrong. He will. And in the midst of that, sometimes that's the only hope available to those who are being affected by the wickedness. God will judge. We should note that if your perspective on life under the sun is a godless perspective, then wickedness in the place of justice simply isn't a problem for you. If you're operating on a godless worldview, in a godless world, there's no standard. What, who determines right and wrong? Right? And so, so wickedness in the place of righteousness isn't a problem in a godless world. Evil and righteousness would just be a matter of one's perspective, but that's not the preacher's view, and that's not the Bible's perspective. Instead, because there is a God... There is right and wrong, and there is a divine standard of right and wrong. We don't decide what it is. God is the standard and has communicated that standard clearly to us. And so the day is coming when that standard will be upheld, and God will judge all people, the wicked and the righteous. This means that in the face of injustice, the Christian doesn't ultimately despair. He or she doesn't face injustice without hope. I mean, think about our brothers and sisters in places like China or Afghanistan or North Korea. These brothers and sisters entrust their souls with all their sorrow and despair and hopelessness to the God who hears their plight and sees their plight. And the God who will not let any evil or injustice go unpunished. And so the unhappiness of verses 16 and 17 is remedied by the truth that there is a season for everything including divine justice, and that season will come. Judgment will have its season. One commentator writes, our confidence does not lie in a justice system, but in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. God has promised a day when his son will judge the righteous and the wicked. Our hope is not in a justice system, but in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. And that that leads to a, a point of application, which is simply this. God will judge you. You sitting here this morning listening to me, you standing up talking in front of all these people, God will judge you. When I was growing up, I listened to a, uh, to a it was a, a, a rapper uh, whose name was Master P, and he had a CD that was titled, Only God Can Judge Me. It was a popular phrase, and in fact, it's, it's probably still popular today. It's, a, it's an idea that's usually used to escape human judgment. You can't judge me, only God can judge me. It's often used to, to kind of excuse some type of off-limits behavior. Don't tell me what to do. Only God can do that. But the reality is not only can God judge you, but God will judge you. He will judge you, and he will judge me. Just as there's a time to be born and a time to die, there's also a time for judgment. I mean, you can write down Hebrews 9.27. Just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so all of us that are alive here, we, there's two more steps that we're going to go through. We're going to die, and then we're going to be judged. Right? That, that's, that's on your timeline, whether you believe it or not. That's coming. You're going to die, and then you're going to face your maker. And so for the Christian, there's no fear of, of ultimate condemnation. There's no fear of, of, of eternal punishment. And so, so hear that. There's good news. The gospel is good news. So on one hand, you will not be dealt with according to your sins, And so you don't fear judgment. You're not going to be cast off. You're not going to be eternally punished. You're not going to be dealt with according to your sins because if your faith is in Jesus, Jesus died for your sins and paid for your sins, and he paid in full. 
It wasn't a down payment or a half payment. He paid in full. And so if you're believing in Jesus, you don't fear the judgment of God in that sense. But on the other hand, for the Christian, there will be an evaluation of the lives we live. There will be a a judgment of our works. What, What did you do with what I gave you? How did you use your talents, your relationships, your opportunities? So we will stand before the Lord. We will give an account. We shouldn't dismiss that. But, but, but the point I want to drive home here is that if you're here, you're not a Christian, which I would understand to mean that you're not trusting actively in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. If, you're, if your faith is not in Christ, you're not, you're not believing on him, believing in him. If that's not you your judgment will be severe and eternal. You will stand before the Lord and will give an account. You will be dealt with according to your sins. And your sins are not against a friend or a parent or even a civil authority. Your crimes and sins are against the ruler and creator of the universe, your maker to whom you owe all of your allegiance. It's easy, to want, it's easy to want God to judge everyone else, especially the evildoer, but the reality is that we are all evildoers and we're all in need of the forgiveness that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, there's hope for you. You can stand and be forgiven and accepted before your maker on the account of another. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for you that you might be saved and you might stand in white robes that weren't your own but have been given to you by your faithful older brother, Jesus Christ himself. And so there's, there's hope for you, non-Christian, but that hope's in Christ alone. And he's the only mediator between you and your maker, but he is a sufficient mediator. And so I would, I would plead with you this morning to turn to Jesus, turn to Christ, find mercy in the love of the Father who sent His Son that we just sang about and heard about in 1 John. And so put your faith in Jesus because you will die and you will have to give an account. But there's shelter and safety and security in Jesus alone. Well, as our, our passage continues, there in verses 18 through 22, the preacher turns to the issue of death, but he does so in light of, of what he's just said about injustice and judgment. And his point is connected to what he just said. So this isn't a new section. This is a connection to what has just come. And so notice there in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are beasts. And so logic, I mean, this, is, this, is a, this has been probably the hardest passage to, for me to put together and try and make sense of. You can find, you know, dozens of other explanations. So if you're not satisfied, I'll give you all the commentaries I looked at. And you can, you can pick which one you think is best. But the logic seems to be as follows. There's a time for judgment. There's a season for God to right every wrong. But that judgment is God's business and not ours. And being God's business, since since judgment is God's business, the preacher wants us to know that divine justice and righteousness are not the business of man. In fact, man is not capable of that. And he wants us to know that we are not in the place of God to do that. It's as though our human longing for justice and righteousness are meant to show us that we need God. And so we we see injustice and we see wickedness. We say, that needs to be judged. That's not right. And it's as if that that innate desire shows us there is someone who's put that desire in us and who will, at the end of the day, carry it out. 
And so it's as though he wants us to see that life under the sun, filled with unhappiness though it is, is only fully remedied by a good and faithful God who will right every wrong. And so to make that point, it seems like the preacher attempts to show that man, rather than vastly superior, is actually not much different than the beasts that roam the earth. So, so that's, that's the, the test. He, he's wanting to test us to show us that we're really not that much different than the beasts. So he says, as one dies, so dies the other. They, they breathe the same air. It's all vanity. You're, you're just like the, the bears or the deer. All go to one place, namely the dust. Right, that's his point. All go to the same place. All are from dust and all to dust return. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, now of course, he, he's, he's, later in Ecclesiastes, he'll talk about the spirit of man goes up to the Lord. Right, so he's not making a truth statement here. He's just simply saying, on, in terms of observation, when, when a person dies and a beast dies, you don't know what happens to the spirit. You can't see who knows. Right? So that's his point. You are more like the beast than you would care to acknowledge. So we shouldn't be surprised when injustice or wickedness is in the place of righteousness because man is incapable of exacting perfect justice or righteousness. So he's saying, you, you guys, there's going to be injustice and wickedness because you are beasts in all these places of power. And we don't expect the bears to hold counsel and hold one another accountable. Right? They're going to get it wrong. So, so you, man, are not much different. And I think his point is that instead of self-righteous anger or vengeance, we are to recognize that God is the only one who's able to establish justice and righteousness. And we recognize that he will do eventually just that. For, remember what, what he said at the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord is the only one who never forgets. And he's the only one who can seek what's been driven away. And he's the only one who knows what will be after you and after me. Which is why at the end of verse 22, or in verse 22, we hear the familiar refrain, the preacher comes to a conclusion regarding the injustice he sees, and he says, so I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, or that is his inheritance, for who can bring him to see what will be after him? And so his conclusion, in light of all the injustice weaknesses, is simply to say, we rejoice in our work. That is our lot. That's what we are to do. Our inheritance, that's our gift in life. It's not to ensure that wickedness never rules in places of power. It's not to prevent wickedness from reigning in the place of righteousness. Instead, since we can trust that God alone is able to and will judge all men, we don't despair at the sight of wickedness in the place of justice. We trust the God of all seasons who will judge all injustices in that coming day. And so that's, I think, his point, that we trust the Lord in the midst of this unhappiness under the sun. Well, then he moves in chapter 4 to our next point, number 3. We see oppression, the second instance of unhappiness under the sun, which is oppression. It's a, again, it's, a, it's related and connected to what just came before. So in verses 1 through 3, there's another instance of great sorrow and distress. And so the preacher, it's as if he's going further down the road of injustice and wickedness. He sees great oppression. And so you see there in verse 1, he sees oppression, and the tragedy of what he sees is that the oppressed have no one to comfort them. There's no one to wipe away their tears. And so he sees the oppressed, and there's no help, which means they're not going to get out of the cycle of oppression. And he says, that's tragic. No one's there to even comfort them in the midst of their oppression, much less get them out of this. But not only that, as verse 1 continues, not only is no one able to comfort the oppressed, but since power is on the side of the oppressor, no one can deliver the oppressed. There's truly nothing to be done to save or comfort the oppressed. 
I mean, this is a helpless observation. Oppression is an evil thing, especially when it happens to the helpless, those who can't help themselves. These verses are a splash of cold water in the face. This is the world we live in. There is unhappiness under the sun. And the preacher, in light of what he saw, notice verse 2, I thought that the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Why? Because they don't have to see it anymore. They're dead. They don't have to look at what I'm looking at, the preacher says. He decides it'd be better for him to be dead than to have to see what he sees regarding the oppressed. But then verse 3, but even better than that, better than the one who's dead and better than the one who's alive is the one who hasn't yet been born. Why? Because he hasn't even seen any of, this, any of these things that we're seeing. So it's better to not yet be born, to have not yet been born. I mean, this is a, this is a realistic evaluation of life under the sun. There is unhappiness. And so it's wrong for us to ignore that life in this world is filled with injustice and oppression. I mean, that's just life under the sun. We live in a cursed and fallen world, and so we we better not pretend like it doesn't exist. We better not distract ourselves and flip through the story and find something to, to alleviate our concerns or our despair. The world we live in is filled with injustice and oppression. I mean, think of the senseless suffering of the helpless, even in our own country. Think about the abortion industry. Think about what was just found in, in Indiana a couple weeks ago. All of the remain. I mean, this is, this is tragic. But not just in our country, all over the world. The, the sex trafficking industry, the child porn industry. Think about child abuse, molestation. I mean, these are helpless being oppressed. And this is tragic. And we must not pretend like it doesn't happen because it does. It is a splash of cold water in the face. This is the fallen world. This is sin wreaking havoc. And it's, it's, it's the world we live in. If we don't come face to face with that reality of, of this type of unhappiness, with the depth of this unhappiness in the world, we're not living in reality. So we just need to let that settle on us. And while it doesn't always bring an immediate fix, while it doesn't always make things easier for the oppressed, the reality is that the day is coming when every oppressor will be dealt with. The day is coming when every abuser will be dealt with. And the day is coming when the oppressed and the abused will be comforted. Their tears will be wiped away. And that's the solution. That will remedy all the evil in the world. That day is coming. So as we look out and we see the brokenness all around us, there is hope because there is a right coming. But lest we think that that great evil is only outside of us, the great fix, the great reversal is going to affect our own hearts, which are plagued with evil as well. And so we long for the day when every right, when every wrong will be made right. And that's our hope in the midst of this unhappiness under the sun. And so first we, just, we should recognize that that is the world we live in. But the other thing to note about these verses and the point the preacher wants us to see is that he's transitioning to help us step back and see a big issue, a, a common factor in the unhappiness under the sun, which is just like the section before with, with injustice and wickedness. In, in these verses, oppression, the driving force behind all of these actions 
is a desire for personal gain or for personal benefit. It's a selfish drive that leads to oppression and and all of these, these evils and wickednesses under the sun. Those who are wicked are, and those who oppress others are those who view their purpose in life as gain, gain, gain. And so anything or anyone that's in my way, I'm going to utilize for my advantage. When we pursue gain because we think that's all there is to be had, others are going to be hurt. And the preacher wants to say that's not why we've been given life under the sun. Others are not people or things to be utilized for our own good. And so he transitions then, I think, in this line of thought to verses 4 through 6, and another cause of unhappiness is the jealousy or the envy that seems to motivate all the toil. So so look there in verses 4 and 6 of of chapter 4. The envy, verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after a wind. As one commentator notes regarding this verse 4, the fuel that feeds the fires of this human striving after gain is now for the first time in Ecclesiastes identified. It's envy. It's jealousy. So, so, so when life is only seen as an arena for gain, there is no escaping the use of others for your own benefit. To see, to see others succeed and gain is to limit your own success and gain. And so, so if they're gaining, that means that's things I'm not gaining. If they're benefiting, that's things I'm not benefiting. So I'm going to make sure that they don't so that I do. It's this cycle. And the cycle never ends because the one who sees life as only for personal gain is never satisfied. Never satisfied. There's always a desire for more and a longing for more. And that's why it's striving after the wind. You'll never catch it. You'll never get enough. No one is ever satisfied. When self is at the center of your striving, you will never be satisfied. It's like the famous John D. Rockefeller quote when when a reporter asked, how much money is enough? This is one of the the richest men. I think he's the first ever American billionaire. But he was asked, hey, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? His famous reply is just a little bit more. He was a billionaire. I think think in, in, in modern times, he was worth $18 billion dollars. And he said, I need more. I need more. Right? So, so this, he is an example of striving after the wind. When, when one is living for self, you're never satisfied. And so the preacher's point is that envious toil is the cause of much unhappiness under the sun. It's selfish striving for personal gain. And then in verses 5 and 6, he, he, he turns to these two proverbs to prevent a misunderstanding of his point. Because you could hear that and you say, okay, I'm not going to work at all. If that's, what, if that's what my toil is going to lead me to, I'm not going to do it at all. So he says in verse 5, to that person, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, the fool is the person who folds his hands, which means the fool doesn't do work. And so when you don't do work, you eat your own flesh, right? Now, now that's not literal, but if you're not working, you, you can't do anything. You can't provide for yourself. And so you're forced to eat yourself, and so the way to avoid envious toil isn't to stop toiling. That's what the fool does. So, so the answer isn't to stop toiling. It's not to be lazy. Right? The lazy person has nothing because the lazy person sits and doesn't toil and, and folds his or her hands. So the answer isn't to avoid toiling, verse 5, but verse 6, the answer, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. 
one handful of quietness is better than two handfuls of toil and striving. Now, now if I'm looking at life as only for gain, that math doesn't add up. I'd much rather have two than one. But his point is, you're not made for striving. You're You're not called to live for personal gain. He says the one that has one handful is better than the person with two because the one handful is of tranquility, of quietness, of contentedness. So one handful of tranquility is better than two or three or four or five or a hundred of toil and strife. It's better than a life of always pursuing gain and surplus. That's his point. We're not, we're not called, we're not made to live for selfish gain. The life of striving is fundamentally anti-neighbor. Do you realize that? If, if all I'm doing is striving for personal gain, I'm going to be opposed to my neighbor. If your neighbors are simply obstacles to your happiness and obstacles to your me, if, if neighbors are simply obstacles to your happiness and a means to your gain, not only are you going to wear yourself out striving after the wind, you're also going to experience much unhappiness under the sun. Which leads to his last section there in, in verses 7 through 16. This last section of, of human isolation or loneliness. So, so look there in verse 7. As he transitions, he says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either a son or a brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, what, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I can't even enjoy the work because I just got to keep going and going. And so to begin to transition, to make his point about the danger of human isolation or the unhappiness of loneliness, the preacher lays out a common scenario. This person, like the one tirelessly working from his envy of his neighbor, toils and toils and toils with no end in sight. But all of this toil, this go, go, go mentality, with all that it costs and all that produces, is not satisfying. The end of toil is nowhere to be found. There's always more. Never satisfied. I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. Gotta climb and climb and climb. And you're never high enough. There's always more. And this person, at the end of the day, whenever it is that this person stops his toil and goes home, guess what? The lights aren't on. No one's home. There's no neighbor. There's no friend. There's no family member. At the end of the day, he or she is all alone. At the end of the day, regardless of their Facebook account or their Instagram stories, the person is not happy because he or she cannot be. If all you do is live for self, there's no room for else. If it's all me, there's no room for we. That's his point. This this person is lonely, is isolated. And that's the result. That's the fruit of a life set on gain. And so to show, not only does he, does he list the, the loneliness and the isolation of, of this person who there's no end in toil, there's no one to share with, but then the preacher gives an alternate vision of the world, a vision that is centered among community and focused on others, on relationship. The vision that highlights the benefit of, of two over one. So look at verse 9. He, he's, he's contrasting the, the single life versus the, the relational life. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. Right? The reward for toil, part of it is, is sharing with someone else. And you can't do that if you're alone. If you fall, who's going to lift you up? If you're alone, 
You, you're not getting back up. You're by yourself. There's benefit for two. And, and if you're cold, and if you have another body heat, you, another body of heat, you can keep warm. There's benefit. And, and you, you can't be ambushed as easily with two. So his point is simply to say there's benefit for two over one. Community, relationships with others, neighbors are the way that we combat unhappiness under the sun. The unhappiness of, of loneliness and isolation is combated and pushed back by the joy and the benefit and the protection that comes from relationships. And I'm not just talking about marriage relationships. I'm talking about any relationships. Neighbors and friends and church members. These relationships are, are, are how loneliness and isolation is combated from a life lived with and for your neighbor. That, that's where joy comes from. That's what we were created for. In community, our lives are strong and enduring, like the rope of three strands. The fool's individualistic life, on the other hand, is weak and destined to be broken. That's his point. There's benefit to the plurality. And to further emphasize this theme, the preacher gives one final example in chapter 14, this contrast between a poor but wise youth and a rich but foolish king. So these are the two individuals that he's contrasting. And so again, there's a lot of discussion on, on these few verses, but the main point is clearly laid out in 13. In verse 13, it, that it's better to be poor and wise than to be rich and foolish. It's better to be poor and wise than rich and foolish. That's the main point. That's the big picture. The king who toiled and toiled and toiled and finally made it to the top, he rose from poverty to riches, from, from, from rags to riches, from the bottom to the top. He finally got where he wanted to be, rich and powerful and popular, but he didn't know how to take advice from anyone, which means he didn't trust anyone. He was isolated. He was by himself. And even though he was the most powerful person in the kingdom and though he had toiled from bottom to top, the reality is those who would come later would not rejoice in him. He had no one to share his life with. He had no one to comfort him. He had no one to keep him warm. He had no one to keep his memory alive. And after all of his toil, he would soon be forgotten. And so the rich king who didn't know how to take advice from anyone, who didn't have a relationship with anyone, is, is far worse off than the, the poor youth who was wise, who had relationships, who could take advice from others. Better was the poor and wise youth without power and wealth, who was wise and had family, friends, relationships, knowing the dangers and the ultimate devastation that comes from human isolation. And so his point, his emphasis, as he runs through the end of chapter 4, is that human isolation is the cause of much unhappiness. Well, there, there's two, two final applications as we close. Two final applications. Number one, God is in control. As, as we step back from, from these verses... God is in control. Similar to last week's application that seasons come and go according to God's plan, this week, especially in light of the unhappiness under the sun, an important application is, important application is simply that God is in control. This is God's world. In the midst of injustice and oppression, God's sovereignty, God's control is a firm foundation. And sometimes it's the only firm foundation in the midst of life under the sun. Don't lose that foundation. God is in control. I was reminded of, of the, the Twyla Paris song. You guys know the song I'm talking about? God is in control? Twyla Paris? So the verse, God is in control. We believe that his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. 
There is no power above or beside him we know. Oh, God is in control. That's a great song that, that teaches this truth. God is in control. Or maybe you're familiar with he's got the whole wide world in his hands. Maybe you know that one. Same truth. This is God's world, and he is in control. When confronted with unhappiness under the sun, regardless of what it is, there's sufficient support in the God who is in control. But the second final point of application from this would, would simply be that life was made to share. Life was made to share. It's beginning to emerge, especially in chapter 4, that life and purpose and joy and satisfaction are tied to my relationship with others. It's tied to how I treat and relate to others. A selfish, self-focused life is an unhappy life. A selfish, self-focused life is a lonely life. A selfish, self-focused life is an ungodly life. We were created for community. We were created for relationships with others. And while, yes, there are difficulties that come with relationships, I get that. Some people are weird, right? Some people are costly to relate to. Yes, there are difficulties that come with with investing and becoming vulnerable with others. I get that. But at the end of the day, the cost is nowhere near the return on investment. You are created to relate to others. That's part of what it means to be image bearers. We are relational people. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to know that a life of enjoyment under the sun is rooted in pursuing gain, not for oneself, but gain for the good of others. A we-focused life. That's what we're called to. We, not me. In fact, yesterday we were doing some yard work and and our house has become the, the neighborhood house. And so whenever we're outside, we just get neighborhood kids coming. So yesterday, Jancy and I said, hey, let, let's put them to work in our yard. We're doing yard work. And it was helpful. It was really helpful. So, so they really helped us. But every so often, so we, we give them tasks, but every so often there would be an argument. It's my turn with the wheelbarrow. Let me use that. Stop it. And so part of what, what we said, because I'm thinking about this, I, I tell them, hey, guys, here's what we need to learn. It's we, not me. And so whenever you guys are arguing, it's going to be about something you want your way and what's best for you. And so you, every time you come to me with an argument or you come to tell on your friend, I'm going to say, we, not me. Because if we have a mindset for the good of everyone, we're going to do whatever is needed. And we're going to let the other person have the wheelbarrow. We're going to let the other kids swing the axe. Right? It was supervised. It was supervised. <laughs> but the principle is there. It's we, not me. And that's what we're called to. And we must not forget, not only is that what we're called to, that's the example that's been set for us. That's the example that our Savior has set. He didn't didn't take what he had and say, this is mine, this is for my own gain, but rather he set it aside. Though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or, or taken advantage of, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. Not only that, it gets, it gets even more low. Not only did he take the form of, of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is, that is the greatest example of riches to rags. And that's the Savior that we're called to follow. And so Christian, brother, sister, consider how are you investing in relationships with others? How are you pursuing those around you, in your family, or your neighborhood, 
in this church, how are you doing? Just how are you doing? Ask yourself that question. Ask your family members that question. Ask your coworkers that question. Ask your friends that question. And be willing to, an- to listen to the answer. Let's pursue one another. Let's serve one another. Let's work with others for their joy, recognizing that their joy is our joy. It's all wrapped up in one. And so let's fight against the envy-driven, self-centered, lonely toil that is the source of so much unhappiness under the sun. Let's, let's pray as we close.